Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. We're studying through the book of Exodus, chapter at a time. We're in chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 14 through 31. The topic there, an enraged Pharaoh follows the Israelites into the Red Sea, thereby sending his own forces to their death. The title of our message, Madman Across the Water. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we uh, sit beneath your teaching, given through Moses, Lord, in this amazing book, telling these amazing stories, we pray, obviously, we would understand them in context, but also in the context of our own lives. All of us here this morning, we need exhortation, we need encouragement, we need to understand that, that you're in this place ministering to us. We need to listen to the still, small voice and the prompting of the Spirit within us. We need to be equipped, Lord, to go back out into the world. It's not even asking a lot because you want to do more than we could even ask or think. And so do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, amen. Who is from Missouri? Anybody want to admit that? So is it, or should I say Missouri? I Good answer. The pronunciation became a major issue in it. By the way, this wasn't a plant. I just had no idea Mike was from Missouri. The pronunciation became a major issue in a recent campaign for governor. Then Governor Jay Nixon endured accusations of flip-flopping, not on the major issues, but for using both pronunciations in a virtual one-to-one ratio. He would sometimes use the two pronunciations in the same sentence. His opponent, Dave Spence, said he was more consistent, exclusively using the Missouri pronunciation, but he caught flack when a video clip featured his wife saying he's going to be a great governor for the state of Missouri. So there was obviously disharmony in that home. (laughs) A reporter commented, most of the state's top officials stick mostly to Missouri, but they sprinkle the other ending into the occasional speech, especially when they're introducing themselves or speaking to rural audiences. Strategists say that it's just good Missouri manners. Now, one thing all Missourians agree upon is the unofficial state slogan. You probably know it. What is it? They're the show me state. State website says, show me describes the character of Missourians, not gullible, conservative, unwilling to believe without adequate evidence. The Red Sea crossing of Israel and the pursuit of the Egyptian army is a biblical show me. I think it perfectly illustrates something we read regarding our salvation in Jesus Christ in the New Testament letter to the Colossians. This is from Colossians 1, it's verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. The Israelites have been powerfully delivered from the power and dominion of Pharaoh and Egypt. Crossing the Red Sea safely, they were being conveyed along into the promised land. But more than the obvious, the crossing illustrates spiritual truths for all believers for all time. Being rescued from Egypt the way they were by the blood of a substituted lamb illustrates being delivered by God from Satan and sin. Miraculously, crossing the Red Sea onto the opposite shore illustrates being supernaturally conveyed onward to the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian, you've been delivered 
and you've been conveyed. You've been delivered from a kingdom of darkness and conveyed into a new way of life. Keep that in mind as our point of contact with this incredible story. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, keep looking forward at the kingdom into which you've been received. And number two, take a look back at the kingdom from which you've been uh, rescued. So let's look forward first in verses 14 through 22. Now, when a Christian refers to the kingdom or the kingdom of God, exactly what does he or she mean? Well, there are at least three ways we speak about the kingdom of God uh, that are biblical. First, the kingdom of God is the rule of the eternal sovereign God over all the universe that he has created. In Psalm 103, verse 19, we read, the Lord has established his throne and his kingdom rules over all. Second, the Bible describes the kingdom of God as the spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to his authority. One site said, and I quote, the kingdom of God is equated with salvation and it is evident in John 3 where Jesus says the kingdom of God must be entered into by being born again. And so when you're born again, when you're saved, you enter into a spiritual kingdom as a willing participant in submitting to God's rule. And so the kingdom of God, we would say, is his rule over creation, and it is his rule over his new creatures in Jesus Christ. And then there's a third way the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God. God has unconditionally promised the nation of Israel that they will experience a future physical kingdom of God on this earth with Jesus ruling over it from David's throne in Jerusalem. The prophet Daniel said, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. We often call this future reign of Jesus the millennial kingdom because in the book of the Revelation in chapter 20, we're told at least six times that it lasts for a thousand years, and that's what millennial means. It has a very distinct beginning, the second coming of Jesus to earth with his saints. It has a very dramatic end, the final judgment of Satan and all non-believers from all of human history, and it endures from beginning to end for a thousand years. Putting all three explanations of the kingdom of God together, we would say God is in charge of the universe, Jesus is coming back a second time to fulfill the promises of the kingdom on earth, and as we wait for him, the kingdom of God is his spiritual rule over those who are saved. There is simultaneously another kingdom at work. Satan is referred to as the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. He's given the title ruler of this world in John chapter 12. In 1 John 5, 19, we read, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so we are of God, we're of the spiritual kingdom of God on earth, but the rest of the world is under the sway under the leadership of the devil. In the desert temptation, Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if the Lord would simply bow down and worship him. The Lord declined, but he did not dispute Satan's claim over the kingdoms of the world as the God of this world. On the cross at Calvary, Jesus defeated Satan, conquering sin and death at the same time. But seeing he was rejected by the Jewish officials, the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth was postponed. When Jesus returns in his second coming, the revelation proclaims this, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
God is in charge right now, but in his long suffering, not wanting any to perish, he tolerates Satan and his evil empire. Defeated, the devil fights on. His fate, however, has already been determined. At the second coming of Jesus, he will be incarcerated for the thousand years in a place called the abyss. At the end of the thousand years, he will be cast alive into the lake of fire to spend eternity in conscious torment. We are participants in the spiritual kingdom of God as he rules over us, but we are living in a world whose God is the devil. In the crossing of the Red Sea, our salvation is illustrated as we see the Israelites first rescued from Egypt, then conveyed to the far shore. It's like our being rescued from Satan and sin to be conveyed into the kingdom of God, which is first his spiritual rule and then his total rule over the earth. And so we're picking up the story in verse 14. Israel is trapped between the devil and the deep Red Sea with mountains on both sides and an uncrossable body of water ahead of them. The Egyptian armored forces are barreling down upon them uh, to destroy them. And so verse 14 says, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. God had positioned them in such a way that they were powerless and helpless on their own. There was nothing they could do or say to save themselves. It's a reminder that men must be rescued from the kingdom of Satan, from the dominion of the devil. We cannot help or save ourselves. Only Jesus can bind the strong man, as he said, and save those who are held captive by him and kept blind and in the dark. And so God is the one who saves us. We do nothing uh, to save ourselves. Verse 15, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel, go forward. Now Moses had been praying. The word cry here means that he had been spending time with the Lord praying, and that was good as far as it went. God told Moses, however, the time for praying was over. Now is the time for doing. As believers, we should have times we set aside for prayer. We should often pray for one another, and we should be praying at all times, communing and having fellowship with God in our hearts. We, we try to encourage an atmosphere of prayer here at the church uh, in our public praying and in the prayer cards and in eliciting prayer responses and different things like that. And so prayer, very important to the Christian life, this communication with God. So don't take away anything other than that by what I'm going to say next. But we also see here from God talking to Moses that there are times when praying is a stall tactic. One writer said, there comes a moment when praying is a form of spiritual procrastination. There's a time to stop praying and to start acting. If you know something needs to be done and it is something good, you may not need to pray about it. And you certainly need to do more than pray about it. We have as kind of a, a reaction in our language as Christians, oh, I'll pray about it. And I'm not saying it's a lie or that it's a bad thing to say, but a lot of times people will bring up a need or suggest a situation and say, well, let me pray about that. And I'm saying that there are times when prayer is not necessary because it's obvious what God wants you to do. So think of some things that you might be sincerely praying about. Maybe you have a prayer list. Is it in your power to help? Is it in your power to meet that need? Is it in your power to participate or to serve or to give or to go? 
Perhaps today God is saying to you right now, why do you cry to me? Go forward. Like Moses, the staff may already be in your hand. Moses had everything he needed to deliver the children of Israel in the power of God. The Lord said, let's quit praying about this and let me tell you what to do with what I've already given you. You're going to be able to meet this need. And and what what a joy to look at our list that way and say, I wonder what it is the Lord wants me to do. Uh, you know, a lot of times we pray that someone else would, would fill a position or step up to the plate uh, when, when God is saying, no, it's you because you have the means, you have the ability, you have the gifting, let's go. So verse 16, lift up your rod, your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. This would not have been my first choice. God, how about you just rain hailstones down on the enemy? I'll stay here in a position of relative safety, uh, and you can just take care of the enemy for me. Some method in which I'm a spectator, not a participant. I'm a very good spectator. I'm not as good a participant when it comes to spiritual things. But it's never about defeating the enemy. That's easy for God. It's about you and I growing in faith. It's about God using us for his glory. We are his great workmanship, and he takes every opportunity to create us more in the image of Jesus Christ. And here he sees an opportunity to use Moses and the children of Israel uh, and to not just do things on his own, which would have been easy for him. He says, I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Every time we see God harden the hearts, I feel obligated to remind you that what is meant is that he allows folks to follow the dictates of their own will. In this case, he allowed the Egyptians to follow their rage into the water. In the wrath of men, if if the wrath of men is what they offer to God, as they do here, he'll use that to his glory. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You'd think that by now the Egyptians would know that Israel's God was God. Over a period of at least eight months, they'd had a series of 10 incredible wonders performed before their very eyes, signs that Israel's God was not just stronger than the gods of Egypt, not just stronger than Pharaoh, but that he was in fact God over the universe. Really, what more could God have done to reveal himself to them? What more? People like to look at these Old Testament stories, and this one in particular, and and say that God is cruel, that he's wicked, that he's vindictive. Certainly not Jesus in the New Testament as he's raining down plague after plague against the Egyptians. Well, they were holding... God's people captive. What do you want to do when people are holding Americans captive? Do you want to say, well, let's just cut our losses. We don't want to seem mean. Sorry, guys. We, we're, we're really the good guys, so we, there's nothing we can do about that. Everybody gets their hackles up. Even liberals get mad. Let's go do something about that. We're America. We have to rescue Americans. So, uh, so this starts out as a rescue mission. And then God says, I know you guys are in a lot of distress, 
I know you're my people, but this is gonna take eight months because I'm gonna give a series of 10 opportunities for Pharaoh to let you go on his own so that I don't have to keep amping things up. And Pharaoh continues to refuse until God says, I'm gonna kill the firstborn of all Egypt, but I'm warning you ahead of time and I'm giving you a way out. And then they ignore that and then God finally delivers his people. And then once delivered, now the Egyptians come after them to destroy them. And so God, extremely merciful and gracious, more so than you or I would be in a similar situation if somebody had our children. And so bear that in mind. If men and women do not get saved, it's not for lack of effort on God's part. Creation reveals God to everyone, everywhere. Maybe not perfectly, but creation tells us that there is a creator. The gospel is presented in the heavens in the form of the constellations that the ancients called the Maseroth. And then God has placed eternity in our hearts, the book of Ecclesiastes says. We take that to correspond to what the Apostle Paul said once on Mars Hill. He said, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So God says built into the human heart, what we call the heart, is a thing called eternity, a longing for eternity, an understanding that there is something or someone greater. And then God puts people all over the world, specifically he says so, they will seek after him. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, talking about the cross, I will draw all men to myself. That tells us that a power, a supernatural power emanates from his work on the cross that works in conjunction with this other stuff to draw men to himself, to open their hearts, to free their will so that they can make a decision for Christ. And so people are without excuse and it's not for lack of effort on God's part. Dr. Stephen Hawking died this week at age 76. He had this to say about death. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There's no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Apparently he was talking about Microsoft computers. <laughs> Hawking also said, one can't prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. He wrote in his celebrated book, The Grand Design. And so Hawking suggests there is a grand, or we would say intelligent design, but no designer. That's not really a tenable position. There's plenty of evidence that God is reaching out to mankind, that there is a design in the universe and that we can discover that design. Verse 19, and the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. The angel of the Lord is an Old Testament or more accurately a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in some form. Here it seems we're to understand that Jesus was the pillar that had been leading Israel. Twice God said he would gain honor. The word is also glory. He had positioned Israel in a way that their circumstances, their dire circumstances, would reveal his glory 
We took a long look at this at our last study. We won't always know this side of heaven, how certain of our circumstances bring God glory. We're to trust and believe that they do or that they will. I've said this before and I always get in trouble when I say it, but I'm gonna say it again. A lot of times people in terrible circumstances feel like something good has to come out of it and so they establish some kind of a foundation or some kind of a movement. And those can be good, don't get me wrong. A lot of things have come out of that that have done a lot of people good. But what we're talking about is that the truth that in your life, you you may have something happen like that and you're not gonna be able to do anything. You're not gonna be able to establish a foundation or have your name uh, immortalized in that way. No one's really going to even know what you went through. But God somehow in his own way is using it for his glory. And if you don't figure out how he's doing that in this life, you will at the reward seat of Jesus Christ when he talks to you about it. And so let God get the glory, not man. Verse 20, so it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one and he gave light by night to the other so that the one did not come near the other all that night. There was a clear separation between the two groups. One was a kingdom enshrouded in darkness, the other a kingdom of light. When Jesus came to earth the first time, he said to Nicodemus, the light has come into the world. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Hawking when he said that it's because men are afraid of the dark, that's not true. Men are afraid of the light. Men are in the dark, comfortable in the dark, until the light shines and then they scatter because they love their sin more than they love the Savior. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. It's no less a miracle because God utilized Moses' staff and a strong east wind. God doesn't work alone. He can, but he chooses not to. He wants to work through the instrumentality of Uh, humans and non-human powers to accomplish the divine purpose. Verse 22, so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. It's been estimated the crossing would have taken at least nine hours if the Israelites numbered two million. We think there's good evidence they numbered more like six million. At any rate, this was a slow crossing that took considerable time during which walls of swirling water were on either side. Uh, can't calculate how high these were, but it was, it was kind of terrifying. I, I, it would have taken a lot for me to get in. I, I guess I would have, you know, it's one of those things, how do I want to die, you know? The Egyptian army behind me, or this, do I really trust the Lord that this water's going to hold? I mean, we look at these stories and say, hey, great, wow, wonderful. They must have, hey, look at that water over there, buddy. Uh, This is kind of scary. This is not an easy path. But there was only one way to go, and that was forward on the path that the Lord had chosen for them. They couldn't go up the mountain on either side. They couldn't attack the army. There was clearly one direction. There's one way to go for us, and that's forward on the path the Lord has chosen Your path may be up to high places, but it may be through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not up to us. Job once cried out, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Whether you're in a time of peril 
or a time of prosperity, whether you are being buffeted or blessed, your path leads forward to the coming of the Lord to establish his kingdom. Keep looking forward to the kingdom of God. Verses 23 through 31, let's take a look back at the kingdom from which you've been rescued. I usually counsel folks to keep their before Christ days in the rearview mirror. Giving your testimony is one thing, dwelling on your sinful past is another. Sometimes you get into the war of the testimonies as people, you know, they, they keep embellishing their testimony and how awful their life was. You almost get the impression they miss some of it. There is a way of taking a look back that can be helpful to your walk. The Apostle Paul put it like this when he was talking to the Corinthians. He said, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. What a great perspective to have. Call your past what it was, then see that it pales in comparison to walking in a relationship with the living God. You know, sometimes I get the feeling from Christians that they think they've been abducted from their former life, that they were living a certain way and then all of a sudden God kidnapped them and put them into the Christian life where they can have no fun whatsoever. And when they, you can tell when they give their testimony, they're like, yeah, I, I used to do that. But I don't do that anymore because I'm a Christian. And it's kind of weird. It's like an abduction. You weren't abducted. You were rescued. Call it what it is. I don't mind saying that I was a drunkard in my former life. It's not that I drank. I'm not talking about drinking. I was an absolute drunkard. Alcohol meant binge drinking to me. And from the time I was in the eighth grade until I got saved in my 20s, I was a binge drinker. And so I don't look back and think, oh, and those, those Coronas... Uh, Mexican, the whole Mexican beer thing, you know, and stuff. I was a drunkard. And it's helpful to look in the rearview mirror sometimes and say, yeah, that's what I was delivered from into a kingdom of light. You're never abducted, you're rescued. If you can't have wholesome fun in the kingdom of God, if you're always longing for the garlic you left in Egypt, that's your sin raising up its ugly head. Verse 23, and the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. I love those old gangster movies where all the bank robber has to do is to uh, get across the state line. Driving these like 42 Fords, cops are shooting at them on the running boards and stuff, and then state line, and then they stop and they wave to each other because they, you know, the, that line was absolutely the, the law. Well, uh, it seems that God had drawn a line in the sand of the Red Sea, but Pharaoh crossed it. He was bent on destroying Israel, blinded by sin. He was a captive of the devil to do his will. There's a scripture like that in the New Testament that unbelievers are taken captive by the devil to do his will. It doesn't mean they're possessed. It means that they are used as pawns by the devil to do his will. The devil is bent on destroying the children of Israel because he knows that from them the Messiah is going to come. And this is why throughout history, he's trying to kill uh, the line of the Messiah. And he uses Pharaoh. Pharaoh's a pawn in his hand, not in God's hand. You know, people think, well, God forced Pharaoh into that water to kill him. No, 
The devil had taken him captive to do his will. Pharaoh, remember, had 10 chances to repent. And he didn't. And now this is the result of it. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, man, let's get out of here. That's my paraphrase. Psalm 77 is helpful here. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in a whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And so God unleashed a spectacular display of thunder and lightning and rain and earthquake. The noises would have been deafening. It was sufficient that Egypt's charioteers were struck with absolute terror. As if that wasn't enough, God made the chariot wheels to come off. It's literally to jam against one another so that the Egyptians had difficulty driving them. Egyptians realized too late that they had made a grave error. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. How large was this armored force? We described in our last study that the 600 choice chariots were ridden by three soldiers. That's 1,800 armed men. No way of knowing how many regular chariots ridden by two soldiers there were. If you're super conservative, we'd say that there were 5,000 Egyptians on chariots. But then in verse 27 and 8, it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea, not so much as one of them remained. So there were horsemen as well as chariots, and there appears to have been an army on foot. So this is a huge force. Again, I have no idea the number, but a lot of Egyptians died that day, tragically. On October 24th, 2014, the website World News Daily Report published an article reporting that Chariot wheels and the bones of horses and men had been discovered at the bottom of the Red Sea, thereby providing archaeological proof of the biblical account. The only problem with it, not true. Nevertheless, it went viral. Hundreds of thousands of posts were written about it. It was recycled fake news from previous fake news. World News Daily Report, I hope you don't get your news from them because it has this disclaimer on their webpage. This isn't what somebody else says. This is what they say about their own articles. We assume all responsibility for the satirical nature of our articles and for the fictional nature of their content. All characters appearing in the articles in this website, even those based on real people, are entirely fictional, and any resemblance between them and any persons living dead or undead is purely a miracle. Be careful surfing that thar interweb. There's, before you share that amazing story that the Ark of the Covenant has been found and Harrison Ford found it <laughs> or whatever, just do a little bit of checking. Uh, Snopes is a good site, snopes.com. Just type in, go to Snopes and say, has the Ark of the Covenant been found? And a big red X will come up saying, no, this is false. Now, they're secular, so you can't always... It's, it's clear that the news media puts down 
Christian things. There are artifacts being found. There are archaeological things. But if, something, if somebody says, we found the Egyptian army, that's, that's big news. And, and that's going to that's gonna make the news, and not just World News Daily Report, which is a satirical website. So be careful with that stuff. People already think we're crazy. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Some debate over whether or not Pharaoh died. Psalm 136.15 indicates that he did when it says God overthrew Pharaoh and his army, although the word overthrew isn't conclusive. Uh, We don't know for certain, but um, I would say that Pharaoh died along with his army. Verse 31, then Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. I wonder if God was the first one to say, I love it when a plan comes together. Remember the old A-team slogan? I mean, God could say that many times. He could say it uh, over creation, resting on the seventh day. I, I love it when a plan comes together. But this plan certainly came together. Israel looked back upon the kingdom that had, they had been rescued from, mighty Egypt, a world-ruling empire, wealthy, powerful. But in reality, what characterized Egypt is what characterizes every kingdom ruled by the God of this world. They were fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and thieves. They were covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. That's not an exclusive list. There's a lot of other sins that we could add to that. In other words, they were a kingdom of darkness, worshiping false gods, worshiping demons. And for all their trappings, for the pyramids and their mummification and you know, all of the gold and all of the greatness and all of the glory, they were strewn dead on the far shore. And that was the, that's, that's the ultimate re, you, you can uh, hope for when you're part of a kingdom of darkness like that. And the Israelites were on the other shore in a kingdom of light, in a kingdom of knowledge with the revelation that their God was God. The gospel of Jesus Christ rescues you and you are received into a new way of life with Jesus ruling your heart. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. If you're not a believer, you are a blind captive in Satan's dark kingdom. It's bad enough that it's a kingdom of darkness, but you're also spiritually blind. But the light shines in the darkness, it says in the Gospel of John, and it does that whenever the gospel is presented to you. You say, show me and I'll believe. He has shown you in creation, in the heavens, and by placing eternity in your heart. The greatest intellect of our time knew there was a design to the universe. Whatever else you'd say about Stephen Hawking, he knew there was a design to the universe. He thought it was science. The Holy Spirit is here telling you today that it's Jesus Christ. Science can't forgive you your sins, but Jesus can. Science can't give you eternal life. Its promise is annihilation. Jesus can give you eternal life. His promise is fellowship with God forever and ever in a place where there's no more tears. I think we're right. I know we're right because Jesus rose from the dead and he's coming again for us. Let's pray.